Hello and welcome to Why Are We Talking About Rabbits? That's my acting voice because today we're joined by Jonathan Jackson, Critics' Choice Award actor, or actor who won Emmys for daytime work, also did a number of movies, Talk Everlasting. He's a lead singer for the group of Nation. He's an artist. He's cool. He's also gone through a lot and knows a lot. Today, he shares it with us on Watar, why we're talking about rabbits. Today, we don't talk about rabbits, but we do have fun jumping around with topics like, what does it mean to be an actor? How does one act, actually? Like, how does it happen? This is our immersion series. This is talking to someone who got deep, deep in the weeds of his profession and tells us about it, among many, many other things. So do you think that this um, applies? It's a thing that you were just made me th- like the truth and love continuum, right? Like there's this move toward coercion and mm-hmm. in life, like, like we're parents, right? You yeah. raised kids. How many kids again did you raise? Three. Yeah. I, I, I raised four where we're raising, you know, they're older, but whatever. Yeah. You get it. Yeah. There's this coercion, let's call it coercion. There's a mm-hmm. move to try to push my girls into this truth realm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? And and then as I get more and more coercive, I notice they feel less and less loved. Uh, right. On the other hand, the other side of the, of the continuum is love. And if I allow out of love everything, um, yeah. I actually think they feel less and less loved too. Hundred percent, which is nuts, right? Hundred percent. Yep, that's right. So it's the middle. Is yeah, pure freedom look, or something like look, the middle this, is. Okay. Yeah, I, lo- I would love this because you know we, we were talking about the royal path, which is a lovely term. Really, I mean, yeah. it's it, this can be applied to our own lives, our own pendulum swings, and and insanities where we just go from one thing to the other and it, it can be applied to history um where you just see a, a humanity constantly constantly going from one extreme to the other mm. so this royal path is incredible and um uh i don't remember who i was talking to about this recently maybe my sister but um but isn't it incredible it's like when the gospel when christ comes and and the apostle john it says the law came through Moses, but then he gives us, but he says, but grace and truth mm. came through Jesus Christ. And what, what kind of wisdom and, and, you know, beauty is it to know you, I mean, he could have said truth came or grace came. No, yeah. it's grace and, and truth. truth. Yeah. And it's this, this sacred balance, this tension I remember I, I spoke years ago at a young adults uh, conference um, in, I think it was Long Beach. And um, I was talking about this tension because I remember over the years, you know, working on various sets on projects and this thing about grace and truth was a constant uh, uh, tension for me uh, personally. It was like, it felt like I was in some sense, I felt like I was being I mean, not to be melodramatic, but I just don't know what other language to use. Is it? I felt at times like I was being crucified mm-hmm. internally 
because mm-hmm. because the situations were constantly either either an instinct to have this grace-filled reality that takes away the tension of the truth where it's now it's just you just you're just accepting everything it's kind of like bonhoeffer's cheap grace yeah, right? That's right that's right or there's the other side which is there's really no grace there and you're just you're so focused on the truth that it becomes cold distant judgmental condemning right yeah. so all of these things these wars are going on inside and and but but christ is not letting us let go of either and it's almost as if his arms on the cross are him holding grace and truth and, oh, wow. and and for us to hold grace and truth and not let go of either is to be crucified in the world. Wow. It's to stay because right in the middle. It's to stay and right where the vertical and the horizontal meet and yeah. suspended. Right. So there is no see, and, and we would love in our, you know, kind of a weak humanity, we would love for that crucifixion, that tension, that, suffering to be relieved and how do we do that we run to an ideology one or on the other side. one and the we, other we 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 go to one or the other and so with raising children i'm very thankful to my parents because they 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 always i mean they lived this you know as parents but then they would tell me as well they would say children feel happier and safer when they have boundaries yeah you know so um but you did you say, do you remember disliking yeah. those boundaries? Well, of course. I mean, I think Why every do child we have that dislike. Um, but that's an interesting thing. I don't. Well, I would say that uh, there was an element of it, but but I there was absolutely also a deep instinctive gratitude for it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean. One of the things that, you know, we would tell our kids when they were, especially when they were little, when we'd have to give them a consequence was, I mean, even at a very, very young age, let's say four, you know, we'd, we'd, before we would give them a consequence, we would say, you know, why, why are we disciplining you? And to teach the response back is because, and the kids would say back, because you love me. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's exactly why mm-hmm. you're getting a consequence. Um, so... I think I think it is both, like you're saying, because to to give someone grace at the expense of truth is 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 harmful to yeah. their soul. I agree. I but think yeah, the, the reverse is true. You know, I think the like historically, I think what you see is so you and I are both products of our culture. You're, there's no way around mm-hmm. it, right? Uh, yeah. we, 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 you know, a plant is in part the soil. And so yeah. we came up out of the soil and I just, I just know from being in these other soils that, you know, I call old world on this podcast that mm. basically the soil is bending you already much like, well, it's, it's sin, right? It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, you're going to imbibe something off from the middle. And I, right. I think the American in, American drunkenness is toward what you're calling grace or love or openness or freedom, freedom in the wrong way, but mm-hmm. doing what I want. And so I think mm. when I was coming up, 
when my parents were doing the right thing and providing boundaries like you did, mm. I heard boundaries as you're not allowing me to be fully quote loving or f- grace filled or free. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. but that was my cultural inclination because when I'm in mm-hmm. Africa, you don't really see kids challenge the boundaries. Mm-hmm. They're not wow. raised to do that. Interesting. Yeah. But they are raised to be really, really closely aligned. I'm talking about in the in the in the uh, countryside, in the in the cities, mm-hmm. everything's yeah. changing. Yeah. But yeah. in West Africa, in the in in the villages, you see kids um, in robotic ways becoming like their parents, almost because they have no other idea even what they could possibly even think about doing, because that's what right. I've been taught, which yeah. is another kind of cultural like a bend right sure perhaps a lack of grace or love or freedom or something right right. i think every culture battles right now what's our culture doing though lord well it's you know i i really would love to give a a shout out to um well to i've finished reading three there's a four volume history uh book series called paradise and utopia by john strickland Mm. and um the fourth one i think is coming out in november but i've read through the first three and um this i really can't recommend this strongly enough for people that care about any any of these things because when you go through history in this way uh from you know starting from the beginning of uh, christianity all the way through the great schism to, you know, medieval Christianity and uh, enlightenment and all of this stuff and secularism. And you really see the roots of where some of these things came from. It's um, it was kind of a, a healing and emotional experience for me reading this because um, you really see the pendulum swings and, and it's, it's amazing, you know, and, See, it's it's interesting for me that you say you you mention our culture being more in the sort of like uh, freedom, uh, openness to everything, subjectivity, you know, of the equality autonomy. zone. Yeah, yeah, and that's true. But I would say that America, America, for the first you know couple hundred years or so, at least. Uh, had a very strong, uh, the pendulum was on the other side. Yeah, you know, there yeah, was a I lot so. of fundamentalism, uh, puritanism, mm-hmm. um, a lot of sort of everything is no. You know, there wasn't a vision towards what the yes is, but it's just everything's no. And also very rationalistic where a lot of the, you know, uh, various Protestant denominations were quite just in the mind. Yes. And the faith was, it became an idea. Um, And then many times an ideology. So now, because a lot of that's been abandoned, there's this like huge pendulum swing towards uh, this, you know, postmodern, again, you know, subjective, autonomous uh, thing. And both are damaging, you know. I, I I felt like after reading the first three volumes that 
it's almost like in the West, we've been living in a hall of mirrors. Like mm. we, we cannot, we do not know who we are. We don't know where we came from. Um, we don't know how we got here. And people are, have been throughout the centuries looking for answers, but we're just, we're looking in all the wrong places <laughs> and it keeps leading us to dead ends, you know, like monovision dead ends, you know? Um, I don't know. It, it made me really have a lot of compassion for just the struggles that our culture is in right now. It was yeah. kind of, you know, it opened my eyes like, you know what? It makes sense. We are where we are, where we are right now. Because of on- the roots of the roots, the roots that he talks about. He he came on our podcast. For, oh, uh, awesome. Wonderful. Yeah, John Strickland. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you guys can check that out. I forget. It's, I don't know. It's a while ago, but it's not too long ago. Yeah. He's doing something there. That's really amazing because he's, yeah. he's doing like Theo history, right? Like theological mm-hmm. Which is kind of my favorite thing. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, the the concept of there being a theology and a history, that even in, a, in and of itself is a new world concept. The, the, mm-hmm. g- God or the divine always inspired the history. They, they're always connected. Um, mm-hmm. Even even us being able to talk about it as two independent sort of thought processes is is is, yeah. is very Western and modern. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, you couldn't, it'd be very odd to tell the story of Odysseus, which is a history story. I mean, and people don't realize all those old yeah. oral histories are, right. they're, they're telling people about who they are. So, so number one, history, without going on a rant, history was always about, okay, I'm going to tell you history, which is your story about who you are. Ready? Go. And then mm-hmm. they would sing it. Or they yeah. would write it and sing it. <laughs> mm-hmm. They would, you know, you're a theater, you're an actor. The mm-hmm. whole point was to recreate, to remember and put back together the history. But yes. so they, you know who you are. That's the point. So when you see multiple choice questions about history, it's a nightmare. Because that's a narrative about who I am. And I'm supposed to answer what year George Washington was. Pre- well, it's just a nightmare, right? It's like a disaster. <laughs> But yeah. what you're what you're touching on is really interesting. Is that like the who you are was always answered in part by who your God was. Yeah. So of who course. your God was had to be part of your history, and it usually started with who your God was. Now yeah. we tell a story about who we are, with no sense of origin stories. That's right. It's pretty wild. Yeah. It's like I came out of the mud or something. Like rah. <laughs> it's it it is that's and it's also amazing that it's amazing that people think that losing all of that what you just described won't won't really have much effect on people. <laughs> you know it's like yeah you know um but it it is um yeah, it's it's I don't know. It's heavy. I mean, it's kind of heavy, is what it is. You I know. know when you think about it. Uh, you know, on the pod, we're always trying to say heavy things lightly. So let's go yeah. light for a second. Let's All go right. light for a second. <laughs> okay. Here's light. You have a new. I don't know how much you want to talk about your project down in Texas, but mm-hmm. um, I mean, you're doing this pretty cool thing. So tell us about that. And then I want to, yeah. as a part of this immersion series we're doing, I want to ask you. Some probably cheesy questions about acting. 
Okay. I mean, I know actors. I mean, I I yeah. talked to some and you know, tell us about your craft, Jonathan. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> I do want to do a little bit of that if it's yeah, yeah. okay. If it's of course. okay. Yeah, what, yeah. What's going on with you guys in Texas? There's something cool happening. Yeah. So Texas, um, you know, I was living in Ireland. I think we, I was in Ireland the last time we, we spoke with yeah, the podcast. Right. Um, so uh, one of the things that brought me back to the States was um, an invitation to start a, a film school and um, a, a unique, I guess I would say the vision of it was a unique film school uh, that is kind of, uh, the vision of it being connected with um, poetic storytelling, poetic mm. filmmaking, um, so with the goal of, of helping young people envision um, how to make authentic works of art, um, you know, that, that aren't afraid to portray deeply spiritual themes, but also really have no interest in being polemical or... Yeah you know, beating people over the head. And unfortunately, that's been extremely lacking that, you know, balance um, with any kind of uh, poetical, you know, theological beauty um, has just, it really hasn't been showcased much. So anyway, we started. Could could we do a quick question there? Yeah, yeah, of course. I don't like to go in on people, but I want to just elucidate what you're saying. I think. So a movie about God, God is mm-hmm. dead, for example, mm-hmm. is a movie right. about God that carries a bat, like, and also, right. bam, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. God is not dead, and here's the story, and also, get it together. <laughs> like, right. like, like you're yeah. wrong. Yeah. Would you say that's a kind of movie, I don't know if people know who that is, what that movie is, but it's a, it's a religious movie without right. poetry is that is that kind of what you mean i think that's probably fair to say i don't like criticizing exactly you know exactly. films uh and and i haven't seen it so i i i couldn't say that film in particular but just simply based on sort of you know uh temperament tone word of mouth and whatnot i think that's probably closer to forgive some of me that. for putting you in that spot i, I could well, no i mean it's, it's you get what i'm saying I, there's a series I, of I movies know. like this I do. There's a series of movies like that. And so, um, you know, yeah, and, and that's right. It's sort of a a, a message-driven uh, form of storytelling lacking uh, a lot of nuance, lacking paradox, lacking uh, just it, – it's a very different – uh, motivation and execution. You know, here's a fascinating thing. I thought about this a few, quite a few years ago. I was looking at, let's say, Mel Gibson, who I consider to be an absolutely genius filmmaker, um, you know, as a director. Uh, let's say in the literary world, um, Tolkien, mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis, okay, these are very um, in term, these are very thoughtful uh, people making, I think, high works of art that have also been consumed well by the public. And it's interesting to me that most of the people that I can find that are creating these kinds of works of art that that kind of stand the test of time and all of this, um, they were they're all liturgical. Uh, they've lived a liturgical life. They've lived, uh, their their Christian faith has been surrounded by art, surrounded by 
beauty, by nuance, uh, by an acceptance of, you know, suffering and transformation kind of coexisting and, mm-hmm. um, and mystery and mystery and mystery and all of these things. And I do believe that, you know, the more um, kind of rationalistic, um, oh, what's that word? You're kind of reductionist, I guess, like a mm-hmm. rationalistic reductionism where you're pulling everything down to its very basic idea and you're losing paradox, you're losing mystery, you're losing yeah, poetry, right, and right. then you try to make a work of art. Well, but art is all of those things. Right. Art is a mystery. It is a paradox. It is poetry. It is. So, you know, uh, and the good news for me as an artist is that, you know, uh, ancient Christianity from the very beginning, both theologically and sort of, you could say, maybe practically in terms of how it was being lived out. It's like there was icons in in the catacombs, you know, yeah. there was, uh, and, and, and how central is music, you know, how much yeah. of the divine liturgy is sung and the poetry, just the, the sheer poetry of, of the hymnography is, is, uh, mind boggling. Do you think that polemic? So like, I love a good argument and I think yeah. I'll make one or now and then. And, but I can't remember a polemic, a, a a movie that stuck to the argument that ever did much to actually change anyone's mind. It's sort of, it doesn't mean that an argument is not necessary at times. I think you can defend something beautiful rationally. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> oh, but yeah. I don't think it changes the heart. I think it might query the mind. I don't think it changes the heart, which I, I think true true faith true religion is that's what that is to change a heart mm-hmm. but so you're going to make movies this way and then now are they quote well, orthodox movies probably not that's not how you would think of them no no certainly not i mean there's two ways to look at that um one is to say uh they're they're not not looking to make quote unquote christian films or orthodox films um, in the way that most people in, in, in the world think what that means, mm. you know, mm-hmm. but when I look at, um, Tarkovsky's films, for instance, or, uh, many of Terrence Malick's films, I was just going to say Malick. Yeah, those, sure. oh, dude, Malick is, you know, forget uh, about it. He, to me, he's probably the most orthodox filmmaker. And again, when I say that, I'm not talking about sort of uh again like polemically pushing a, yes, a message yeah yeah when yeah. i say the uh, the most orthodox filmmaker of our times i he's not as far as i know even even orthodox but but the spirit in which he's making these films is yeah. the closest to the theology of the church and the witness of the saints um, I mean, Saint Porphyrios himself said, "Whoever wants to become a Christian must first become a poet." You know, like that's I did not, I did not know that. Oh yeah, that's deep. And uh, Saint Sophronia of Essex has a lot of very similar things to say. There is an incredible uh, parallel and overlapping of um, the the life and experience and ethos of of artists. And the spiritual life. Um, if, if I mean, even if we look at, let's say, very broadly, look at the seven ecumenical councils, and you could you could say that in many ways, um, 
every single one of them was a, a, a fight, a battle between uh, ideological human uh, ways of coming to conclusions versus a poetic, paradoxical embracing of revelation and mystery. Mm-hmm. And the church always landed in, it's like, oh, oh, you're trying to say that, you know, Christ is, um, you know, yes, he was, uh, that he wasn't co-eternal with the father, you know, it's, it's either, you know, he was man, but not fully God, or yeah, he was fully God, but not <laughs> completely human. And the church is saying, no, 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 it's both. Yeah, that's right. That's and right. they say, yeah, but how can you explain that? It's like, well, it's not about explaining it. It's, it's, this is the revelation we've been given, you know, you, and you can't explain a poem really at least if it's really good but you can sure experience it you know plus uh, and the, the, the Alex is touching on that sorry yeah yeah no no i was just saying that, so i've had poems explained to me the problem is is i'm taking away something now that's more like a hammer that i'm going to like apply to something yeah. like a grade or you know to sound smart on a podcast but the experience is totally different than the explanation. The, 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 oh, you yeah. know what I mean? It's like cliff notes counts. Like I can mm-hmm. learn stuff that way, but without the experience, I can't, I can't properly um, relate, you know, to the themes. I only use the thing. I find it to be a, a conversation about usury or utility mm-hmm. all the time. Interesting. A lot of, we yeah. learn in order to be useful. Right. But poetry, that's, Mm. it eludes Man, that that's right so, that's so interesting that you say that yeah because there's see there's some level where again uh poetry poetry exists in the and when i'm saying poetry i'm not talking about poems i'm talking about poetry right. including poems but including you know a film can be a poem yeah uh, music can be poetry it's it's kind of i'm talking about more of a central thing of uh, something that is both experienced and and beyond our full comprehension. Mm-hmm. And Literally. so, I, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's no answers, man. That's the thing. It's like, <laughs> and, and what you're expressing to me, it's like we can't forget that that is part of the, the foundational uh, paradox, the very, very important yeah. paradox, which again would be the essence of God is un knowable yeah but his energies can be experienced yeah. you know and so if saint gregory of palamas articulating this it, it, it i mean and then again you you take that and and apply it to a work of art and that's the thing it's like it, to say that that um to say that there are things we can never know is not to say that we can't know anything, Mm. you know, like there are things in our faith. We can say, yeah, we know this, but we don't know all of this. Right. Right. And allowing those things to just kind of rest next to each other. And it's frightening, I think for at least, you know, how many of us were raised in our culture to embrace a mystery, you know, uh, our beloved priest um, who catechized us began with apophatic theology. You know, it began with like this, what, what we don't know. 
And at first glance, that can be a little frightening, but in the end, it ends up being the most beautiful freeing thing Mm -hmm. because there's a sense of, oh, oh yeah, that's right. Because if this is God, it's, it's inexhaustible. And that means if God is love, it means love is inexhaustible. And it means, okay, well, that means that when we're in heaven, it's, it's completely dynamic. There's, it's not a static, That's right. you know, and that's like, that's beautiful. That's a lovely. Uh, it's also really changes the way we think about end of life. It's not yeah. really end of life. It's, it's really like a threshold to, a, to another dynamic existence, which yes. is pretty wild because that means I still won't know. Yeah, I'm the creature, so I won't know even in heaven everything I need to know. I, I think people think they're going to wake up and be like, Pachow! like like a Marvel comic, <laughs> like now I see it all. But I don't mm. think that's how it's going to work. I don't really know. Yeah. You know, our tradition yeah. says don't yeah. go too far down that road. But if you think about that, though, then you really like all these little parts of your life are thresholds. They're dynamic moments when you you start to learn and experience more. That's why getting old should be cool. That's mm-hmm. why wisdom is usually in these old world cultures associated with leadership. Mm-hmm. You can't lead as a young person by definition mm-hmm. in the old world. You you can't, not because you're not smart. You, you don't have the wisdom because you don't have the actual moments of experience, which is, I think that's faded in our culture. For sure. But what you just said, John, about the the life and existence being this kind of series of thresholds, that's really amazing. I mean, that's for me, that 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 is a beautiful way. Uh, I'm going to have to think about that for a while because that's really lovely. I mean, <laughs> I hope I so. Our, our culture is so uh, obsessed with arriving. You know, somebody said to me something recently that um, – uh, and I don't know if it's true, but it was an interesting observation. They said that um, a lot of millennials um, have a, a very hard time n- not knowing something. Like when they're going into the workplace, mm-hmm. uh, they want to know everything. Yeah. Before, and, and it's like, yeah, but you can't. You, that's how you learn. You learn by not knowing. You mm-hmm. learn by going into it. And, and, and you know, and I think... And again, I'm just guessing here, but I feel like in the old world, maybe there was less of that. You know, I I feel like when, and maybe it's because, you know, kids were working at a younger age. Maybe they were, you know, they were having pretty serious responsibilities at nine, you know, where, so they grew up not knowing and, and how do you do that? And how does this work? And, and and that's like, it's okay. You're not supposed to know. Yeah. (laughs) You know, you're supposed to not know. Yeah, there was a different um, security sort of quotient. In other words, you, you, we've created a type of fear moment where not knowing means incompetence. But yes. you know, when your big brother's right there, and then your mom's over there in the field, like in yeah. my, you're only going to break so much, mm-hmm. you know, in any given community. I'm talking real old world, you know. Yeah. In our world, it feels like you could literally ruin everything with one moment of unknown. And it's it's unfortunate, yeah. I think. Uh, and I I, I, I I laughed, but I didn't mean to laugh because I hope that dynamic, that, that part I was saying about dynamism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I pray that it's this way because it's the experience I'm having as mm. I get older. 
And I'm, mm. I'm hoping that I'm in alignment with the way death is. You get what I'm saying? I laugh because, boy, I, I hope do. it's like that. Mm. The weird thing is we don't know. No, we don't. You know, it's interesting you say that as well, because uh, recently, quite recently, maybe a week or two ago, um, I was thinking about these things and thinking about death and mortality. And I don't exactly remember how this this thought kind of formulated, but there was a sense of um, there was a sense of relating to to uh, Christ um, as as our Passover, like you know, He Himself is, you know, and 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 all and praying to Him uh, within that context um, to say that this this. And it's so funny because it's it's right there. It's like right there in the center of everything, which is Pascha, Passover, and you know. Um, but to think about that, that passing over, not as a necessarily a a thing that happens, you know, sort of as its own reality. It's like Christ is our Passover. Yeah. Wow. You know, and there's something about that for me that I I really wanted that to become even more personal it's wow. it's not something that happens to us it's it, it is that but it's more than that it's it's something that we experience in within him you know there's right. there's a, a literal you know threshold the passover that takes we place participate that it, again it gets so eastern right it gets yeah. so it gets but it's not it's not Eastern or Western. It's sort of like I find as I get older again in, in, in our faith, it gets more scientific for me. What I mean is it becomes more logical. It, mm-hmm. it wasn't logical when I was a convert. It was like mm. a giant set of mysteries, but the mysteries mm. become more logical as I get older. In other words, like I really am my mother in some way. Like I really, it, it, it's not like, oh, that's cute. No, yeah. Like I see my skin starting to look like hers did, and right. It's not that I'm talking in analogies. I'm talking about realities. I am yeah. my mother, but I'm not. Right. The grass is the soil, but it's not. Like right. You know, my right. hair is yeah. my scalp, but it's not. Yeah. And then you start to realize Christ is man. And some, <laughs> like, yeah. and like, how does it all work? And then you start to realize that scientific part is in recognizing the paradox, not the other way mm-hmm. around, not in trying mm-hmm. to undo the paradox. Right. Yeah. You're not trying to, well, that's just going to be fixed. I'm going to fix that paradox. <laughs> yeah. I find yeah. science tries to decode everything mm-hmm. and then kills it yeah. on some level. And yeah. that's the film school on, on some level is trying to put yeah. it back together. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's sort of the, that's the vision of it, which is uh, a restoration uh, of beauty in the realm of the vision of, of artists and, and really wanting to, um, it's, it's in many ways, I would say it's a launching pad um, for someone who feels a deep, uh, very deep, you know, clear, uh, vocation towards the arts yeah you know and um because it's a it is a film school but you know in reality it's it's the art of storytelling you know and so that's something that 
I have wanted to sort of emphasize because, you know, it's not really meant just for people to say, I want to be a filmmaker. It's like, if somebody wants to be a writer, if somebody wants to learn about, you know, whether it's books or screenplays or storytelling or theater or whatever, or if somebody wants to be an actor uh, or music, because there's a whole, you know, course on uh, the mystery of music and sound uh, in cinema, but all of these art forms educate each other, you know, they all connect. And um, so, you know, I would love for more filmmakers to come from this, but I would be just as happy if, if more, uh, you know, screenwriters came oh, I from see. it. That's nice. Because we, that's what we need more. Initially, I think what we need, uh, we meaning just generally speak, like in the world, I, I feel like the first thing we need is more poetically conscious uh, writers. That's the first step. They're out know? there. Yeah. But let's they hope they get there. Let's do this for one second. Let's take a okay. quick break. Thanks for coming on and listening to this podcast with Jonathan Jackson today. Today, this commercial is for First Things Foundation. If you've been watching us, you know we're in a bit of a push. What do they call it? A something-a-thon. A cash-a-thon? No, not really. I've been yelled at by a lot of people that I do not do a good job of reminding you guys that this podcast is meant to help us spread awareness and raise funds for our work. And what do we do? We send people to find amazing people and then facilitate amazing projects in the world's most impoverished places. And we would like you to donate. Monthly, a little bit or a lot, each month on our website, become a donor. Please support First Things. www.first-things.org. Go down this rabbit hole with me for a second of, as an actor, okay. accomplished mm -hmm. actor, um, good at your job. Let's put it that way. Really good. You're immersed in act. It, the, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Walk us through what happens in terms of immersion, that's what we do in first things, right? We immerse. Mm. So we have yeah. this whole vocabulary around this and I won't get into ours. I want to hear about yours. What happens when your line comes or what happens as you're preparing, I don't know, to walk on stage or, you know, onto the, uh, into the camera. Mm. Is there a, an immersive moment? Are you lost for a minute and not yourself? What mm -hmm. describe for the, us the best you can what that means that moment when you're yeah acting. yeah I mean th there's it's multi layered I think and um, <clears throat> it's also changed a lot uh, over the years you know because I started when I was eleven so wow. when I first started I was just like a sponge soaking up everything I could from everyone around me and I, I hope I'm still like that to some extent because I don't ever want to harden and and block it block that out but especially when i was a kid it was just question after question after question mm. and why 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 is this happening and how do how would I, how do i make this transition and um and there are a lot of obviously a lot of different acting methods um and so immersion is a very it's a, it's an interesting topic because you know the the most sort of famous thing that people talk about is method acting where people do different versions of sort of 
quasi becoming the character for a certain period of time, whether they, you know, adopt an accent and, and speak with it, that accent on and off camera for, you know, six months or, no, you know, okay. Daniel Day-Lewis, you know, for Last of the Mohicans went and lived in the forest for months or whatever. And, you know, stories like this, that that's, that's a kind of immersion, uh, which is very intense. Um, obviously, uh, there's many examples of it reaping, uh, wonderful results in terms of incredible performances. Uh, but there are also many instances where this method of immersion of method acting has, has also led to uh, people's psychology and lives uh, being tormented and kind of falling apart. Yeah. Because there's, there's an immersion that leads to a kind of disintegration. That and so at a sense. young, yeah. And, and so as a, at a young age, I was, really uh, thinking about these things deeply. I was thinking about, okay, how am I going to do this without damaging my soul, without um, losing myself, you know, and I was ended up doing a lot of fairly dark roles in my teenage years. You know, I, um, I played a, a heroin addict, um, a serial killer, a abusive boyfriend, a suicidal, you know, uh, person. I mean, <laughs> yes, you know, you uh, and, and that's not even to mention everything I went through on General Hospital, a soap opera, which, you know, takes you through the ringer emotionally. Sure. That's just like from films and stuff. So, you know, I was like really th- looking for answers. And um, were you doing it, method acting then? No, I did. I did kind of experiment with it here and there. You know, I I wanted to just see, you know, and it's a funny story. Actually, I remember one day on General Hospital, I was I was experimenting with this. And uh, Anthony Geary, who played my father on the show, who was really my, you know, biggest mentor as an actor, Mm. he he picked up on it. I didn't tell him what I was. He just picked up on it. (laughs) He just threw it in there. (laughs) And he, he, he just walked over to me and very calmly just said, just be careful with what you're doing. Oh, wow. And I was like, yeah, okay. And, and that, that was it. That's kind of beautiful. Yeah. Very. He's just such a, he, he's a poet, you know, he's such a wonderful artist. Um, And, and I just spiritually, it didn't feel right to me. I didn't feel like I was, it was, I mean, I, you know, it wasn't like I just did one day in it. I mean, I, I put a little bit of thought into it and time, but it just something about it didn't feel right to me. And I didn't even feel like it was going to reap the best results necessarily for me. And even if it did, like, let's say it, it, it got equal results and then destroyed my life. Right. You know, it's like, I, I really want to put all that in perspective. So, so then, I start. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. So go but there's still a moment when you got to enter either, you know, they say right. action. Exactly. So and are you, are you recalling? Is it, is it a big memorization push? Well, that again, that, that was all of the things I was experimenting with. Like, okay, how do you, how do you get there? How do you, how do you get to yeah, this it's place? Interesting. Like faith, I call it faith, whatever, like commitment uh, and, and just immersion, you know, taking the leap. And, but see, Here's the interesting thing, starting at 11, right? So 11 th- through maybe I was just 17 when I left General Hospital. So that was like really the uh, the most intensive training. But I would talk to other actors on the show who, you know, were much older and doing method acting. And they would, they would write 
a memory down next to every line that would correspond with a real, a real memory of theirs that would correspond to what the character was going through. Um, well, for me, I felt like that took me out of the present moment of, sure. of what was happening for one. But the other thing is I didn't have that many memories to pull from. <laughs> That's was, true. Cause you're young. That's right. Yeah. I was so young. So I was like, man, I, I'm not going to be able to come up with <laughs> that enough. one time at Walgreens. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, you know, there, it, it, and so I thought, well, I'm going to have to figure out another way to, to get, to get there. Um, and there's a few things I would say with that. One is, uh, and and I love Anthony Hopkins for this because he is, you know, uh, just one of the most brilliant, revered actors of our times. But he doesn't buy into the whole, you know, method acting. No, he doesn't. Thing. Okay. He just says acting is very simple, you know. And obviously, this is like totally paradoxical because he's put in more than ten thousand hours. He, you know, sure. he's put in his whole life to this. So, um, but nevertheless. Uh, he, he talks about it in a very simplistic way. Uh, and, and I, I found that to be extremely inspiring. So, um, what I started to do was, um, oh, where I was getting to with that was it's, it's very childlike, you know, there are correlations to like when Christ, when he says, you know, you must become like a little child to enter the kingdom of heaven, acting really on a fundamental level is is being open is, oh, is okay. being like a child and then what i started to realize as well is that the most profound element of it really is empathy and compassion really uh, yeah because uh so for instance when i was uh, pl- uh playing a heroin addict when i was like 17 years old instead of trying heroin and you know uh tormenting myself um i was able to speak with recovering addicts um i was able to do you know research so i understood the the physicality of withdrawals and the you know all of that mm-hmm. stuff the emotional stuff but when it came time to performing it um the, the what happened over the years was i started to relate it to christ and say you know instead of being self-focused, I'm, I'm, I want this performance to, to ter- somehow kind of be turned into a, a prayer, to be turned into intercession. So um, it would be this sense of, you know, this representative suffering of a, of a, a young man whose life is, you know, in danger and a, and a mother pleading for his life, um, wanting this representative suffering to um to be an act of empathy and compassion for for the I world see. right mm-hmm. because ultimately that that really is what art is that's it's, right it is it's an immersion into the human experience the 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 common humanity that we have the common pain the common tears you know so it became like well i've never gone through this but that doesn't mean i can't feel it and you can't get yeah. us to feel it. Right. Dostoevsky exactly. talks about that with his writing. He said, good art wow. is not about what I experience. It's about what I experience 
as per your existence. In other words, I have to share what I am with you because you are experiencing something like what I am and that my art must demonstrate that commonality. And he was really into the idea that, well, he was fighting the what now we know is postmodern idea. You know, mm-hmm. all that, that that's Kandinsky and these guys were coming, all these mm-hmm. painters in the in the abstract was yeah. your experience. Oh Lord, there's a truck out there. Did you hear that? I your, heard a little. Sorry. Your experience, he would say, has no value if it's not shared or demonstrated to be shared by others, because that's what beauty is. It's when we are together understanding yeah. things at one point. At one moment, it's sliver of time, which is really cool. That's incredible. And it's amazing that you mentioned Dostoevsky because that was where actually where I was going next. Oh, right. Oh, right. When I was when I was 15 years old, um, I somehow stumbled across Crime and Punishment and The Idiot. And Dostoevsky became probably the most influential, uh, I don't know, uh, person for me in regards to acting really yeah because his uh embracing well his let's say genius at at portraying human paradox the the psychology of people the complexities the absurdities the the things that people say and do in the strangest moments um that became such a wonderful uh place for me to dig into because well plus it helped me because i i because he was writing about pretty dark things right that's right Mm -hmm. and so i was portraying some pretty dark things and so i was looking for people throughout history that were willing to write or act or sing about things that were very honest and Mm -hmm. uh real but but we're doing it from a place of uh hope ultimately Or that's, that's or, right. Or or at least showing <laughs> the consequences of you know sin. So you know Shakespeare, for instance, the Shakespearean tragedy can be an incredibly awe-inspiring thing to witness. Mm. It doesn't leave you depressed. It leaves you uh, changed. It leaves you enlightened around not wanting to become that. Whatever I know. that. Yes, it's familiar right? though. I always yeah, people yeah. Are, I, the students, you know, when I was teaching high school, mm-hmm. would be like, "Oh, not that. What's that got to do with us?" That's from. But those are the most familiar themes in the world. I mean, King Lear, oh, you know, yeah. uh, Hamlet. These, yeah, sure, they're kings from the past or whatever, but they're the most familiar characters there are. If you're yeah. honest with yourself. Yeah, <laughs> because you have that in you, you have the ability to slay yeah. your family, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and and talk about you know paradox and complexity and beauty. I mean, my gosh, the poetry and the elevation of the language is, well, is yeah. astounding. But um, you know, it, it, there's a reason why those plays have stood the test of time. You know, because they have rooted within them all of the things that um, a real work of art has and um so yeah i don't believe any work of art whether it's a a painting or a you know an album a a song uh, a performance in a film what have a, a dance i don't think any work of art 
can be uh, truly uh, performed, executed, experienced on the level that it's meant to without this sort of self-emptying uh, immersion. Nice. And sense. I do think we have to be careful, though, because you can immerse with the other, with the darkness. You know, you can give yourself over to, I mean, take it all the way back to Greek tragedy when, you know, the the they would give the actors would give themselves in an actual ritualistic way to the God, let's say Dionysius, or, you know, we talked about yeah, this. That, this is time. right. That's right. Right. And so they're there and, and they would experience these, these ecstatic things where they're like possessed, you know, mm-hmm. a possession from. And so you can tap into, <clears throat> you can become immersed in that dark energy. There's no, I have no doubts about that. And that was what I was really wanting to to protect myself from, you know, so to say, I, I I want to experience immersion, and there is a self emptying reality to this, but I don't want to lose myself and then graft into something dark. I want to lose myself and graft into the light. But what you find in the light is a suffering hmm. God man. Wow. who is weeping and bleeding uh, for uh, out of compassion, co-suffering out of, you know, so that's what you find in the light. You find people like Dostoevsky who are just, you know, bleeding their, their works of art into the world. So it, you know, to, to be immersed in the light is not like little cherub angels and fluffiness <laughs> and, you know, protecting yourself from the dark in that sense. No, it's, it's being willing to, suffer but but suffer you know join with with the sufferings of christ um and i think that's kind of central these are you're making me think a ton about the process of our work with the field worker who leaves for two years the idea is they live at the at the cultural quote poverty level, whatever that is, of the folks that they go to serve. So poverty is not really relevant here in the terms of money, but it's mm-hmm. a very fundamental change in lifestyle. It's an immersion. Yeah. And then the immersion takes on the cultural attributes of the place. So the Georgian Republic, you start to learn Georgian, you start to live in these very communist style apartment complexes that mm-hmm, are mm-hmm. kind of ugly or you yeah. live in a mud hut or you live in a family abode in Guatemala. Long story is because hmm. you, you you really reminded me is there's sort of two characters. There's two types of characters we see in our work. And this is applies to Peace Corps too. You mm-hmm. get the character who lands, but never immerses. Mm-hmm. I would, something like in acting would be like just memorizing the lines and then mm-hmm. moving on and, and yeah. they're standing in the place, but they haven't sure. entered. Then you yeah. get the other characters who go all the way in. Yeah. And, and what they're really actually trying to do is lose the person that they landed with. They want to lose that person to a brand new entity that wears the African clothes, speaks the language perfectly, never comes out of the, out of the forest, you know, like I'm all the way in. And mm-hmm. both of those extremes, that's not where we find our best field workers. Uh, it's the one that 
goes all the way in on language and culture, but you know what? I can't do that and that because it's not familiar enough to me. I'm still an American, but, but they are willing to learn the language. They're willing to eat the food. They're willing to participate and to relate in a way that also doesn't just leave them standing there in an American hat and blue jeans and, you know, showing up on a weekend to fix something for someone. Mm. You, You have to have a degree of both. Without wow. losing yourself to either, yeah, you know? man, that that is incredible. Yeah, and I can tell you just in my own experience with with uh, acting, let's say that those two realities do exist simultaneously. Um, oh. It's like it's it's it is a weird thing, but there are times when inspiration appears and something is happening where both the performers are. Just something's happening. Really, uh, really, really. Oh yeah. Explain for sure. that though. Well, what is it it, it's that's happening. Well, it's um, I don't know. It's a mystery. I don't really know. I mean, it's uh, sometimes, sometimes it's it's, uh, for me anyway. Sometimes it's it's uh the 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 brilliance of whoever I'm working with. You know, sometimes it's I whatever see. whatever they're bringing is just so uh it it. it it their performance makes my performance. I see, and, and and maybe hopefully vice versa to some extent. But um, it, it's a powerful thing for two artists to trust each other to that degree, to mm. be willing to take risks together and and go there, and you know, emotionally uh, and creatively. But while all of that is happening and and there is some kind of immersive inspiration taking place, there's another side of you that is fully aware that if you go like this, you're going to block the camera for them or you're going to get. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, Oh yeah. That's right. That's the stuff I want to hear. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's that other part of you that's still, you know, through, through the, the muscle memory repetition of just the craft. That's just like on autopilot. And plus, plus your lines, you know, um, I mean, some people, maybe they, they have the, the ability to memorize it to the point where they don't have to think about it much, but especially on soap operas, you know, I'd have to do 120 pages a week and you get one take, you know, so you're always acting and in that moment. And yet also there's another part of another faculty inside of you that is, is pulling up whatever you've memorized. Can we talk about that for a minute? Okay. That's a lot of lines. So what did that, what did that immersive experience? Are you going home right away every day and learning more lines? I mean, are you kind of like in a camp? (laughs) How does it work? Yeah, pretty much, man. I mean, you know, I, I have a ton of respect for, for the people that do it. Uh, I did it for, you know, a total of eight years, six years, the first time and two years, the second time. And, um, it was for me. It was brutal. Um, you and just know, to I, let people know, this is this is General Hospital. When yes. you when you were acting, who was your character? Uh, I played Lucky Spencer, and Luke and Laura were my parents on the show. That's when oh I first started. Gosh, the kid. I remember yeah. this from my mother. So yeah, so, is it is it every night you're memorizing? Oh, much. You must have. Oh yeah. Wow. Oh yeah. Pretty much. Like you'd. I mean, the good thing about the job is because it's so fast when you're filming, uh, you know, you could get through, um, let's say you had 
eight scenes that day, 10 scenes that day, whatever. And you, you could, you could be out of there in four or five hours mm. because they have another 60 pages to, to film while, while you leave and go memorize for tomorrow. But it's, it's, it's this, it can be, if you're one of the main actors who's being worked a lot, which for some reason that happened to me. So I was like just being kind of demolished on an emotional level and uh, mentally staying up till one, two in the morning, you know, mm. trying to get the stuff ready. And unfortunately, fortunately, I don't know. I have this thing in me that I can't show up unprepared. Like it's just right. not You're super attentive. You're- it's not going to happen as much as I wish that I could at times. So, um, you know, uh, I would do it. It's like, I, they would, they would, the first week I came back after being away from the show for 10 years, I came back and I had 10 shows to film in five days. And I think it was about 150 pages just that week to, you know, to, of, of scenes back and forth. Um, and I was like, so I mean, what's it is- look like in the hotel room? You're getting it. You're getting your food. I just, you're just, yeah. are you even in a hotel room? Are you going home at that point? Uh, well, uh, I, when I went back to the show, I, I I moved back to L.A. So, you know, we we so you were right there. Yeah, we were in a house, but I had young kids um, and and it was tough. You know, I mean, it was. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I would have stayed longer than two years had they not really pushed me that hard. And I told them that probably six times. I said, listen, I'm being pushed too hard. I will yeah. leave. And they just for whatever reason, couldn't figure out how to rein it in. Uh, so I left, um, and because I had to, I just couldn't keep doing that to myself and movie you know, sets are different movie sets. Well, they can be, they, they can certainly take you to that point of, of utter mm-hmm. exhaustion, but it's different. What's different about it is the amount of pages you're filming is like two and a half in a day, you know, mm-hmm. maybe up to five, depending on if it's like a lower budget film or whatever. So the memorizing is not very difficult um, with feature films. The difference is on a soap opera, you're doing one take. So if you have emotional scenes, then, you know, hopefully you just nail it and you move on. Mm-hmm. On a film, you have to do that same scene 30, 50 times throughout you know, a 14, 15 hour day or whatever it ends up being. And that wow, gets exhausting. they shoot it that often, that many oh, times. Oh yeah, man. Oh yeah. Just like, you know, you shoot the wide angles, you shoot the mid angles, you shoot this part of the coverage, that part of the coverage and the close-ups. How do you keep just- it fresh? Some people don't obviously, but. Yeah. I mean, see, that's the other discipline with, with filming. And so Anthony Hopkins, for instance, another thing I love about what he said is he said, look, you know, and he can afford to do this because he's Anthony Hopkins. But I love the concept, which is he said, I don't do more than four takes. Get me and, out and of there. To be honest that. with you, in my my experience from my temperament as an artist, I don't ever want to do more than four takes ever of yeah. anything because it's unnecessary. Right. And it's only going to get worse. That is brilliant. I, you know, I all, you know I think this about writing too. You can write it and write it and rewrite it and rewrite it. At some point you got to get away from it. Yes. You can't see it anymore. Yeah. Same, right? Here's another interesting thing I'll throw out there. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because I've never really talked to anybody about this necessarily, but another thing that has developed uh, throughout my life, because you talk about immersion. uh, I think 
soap operas are one of the most extreme immersions you can have. I think so. I think just the amount of dialogue, the amount of emoting, all of that stuff. And one of the things that developed throughout my life, and I think it was, it was a survival thing for me. And one of it, one of those outlets was music. Um, And that's, that's pretty common. I think people turn to music as therapy and a way to survive. But the other thing is what I found is um, the more that I focus on the thing that I'm working on, if that's, if that's my main focus, um, it, it, it doesn't reap as good of results, especially for the art itself, but also for the balance of my life. Then if I have something else that I'm really focused on. Um, and so I found myself falling in love with, you know, reading history or Im- getting, you know, a, a, an immersive experience in something that had nothing to do with um, the, the character or the film or the show or whatever. And what I found was then when I turned back to perform, it was like I had all this other existence of experience, whether it was, you know, learning about, uh, you know, uh, the 1800s or learning about the, you know, Mm -hmm. Shakespeare's time or whatever Mm -hmm. it might be, just Mm -hmm. um, learning about Russia or something. And I turned back to this character, the situation had nothing to do with any of that. And I don't know why I would, I would feel so much more uh, engaged and open to experience that. It's almost like, and then spiritually, eventually I, I, I was like the orientation of, you know, seek first the kingdom of heaven and everything else will be added unto you. Um, I found for myself that if I put this whatever it is, whatever I'm working on, if I put that thing central, then uh, I, I lose something. But if I, if I really keep my, my soul and heart and spirit and mind focused on uh, Christ and, and the things of the kingdom, that's central, then the work, whatever the work is, is slightly peripheral. But when I have to draw my attention towards it, it just worked so much better for me than when I made that thing central. I'm reminded um, I taught uh, philosophy and history for a long time, uh, a course called the history of love or agape. Mm. Essentially it was kind of a course, almost a survey of, of marriage, but it was really philosophy. Mm -hmm. And, and, and this comes out of the fathers. Uh, John Chrysostom makes allusions to this, but it's also a very Hindu concept. Um, It's that the lovers and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm holding up my fingers for folks who can't see if you're listening on a podcast. Lovers who are focused on one another, they create a bond of intensity. Mm-hmm. But the bond itself is super, super fragile until a third bond right. is introduced, which creates the triangular concept where when the the lovers have a third focus, which of course would be God and both Eastern and Western Christianity, mm-hmm. the focus then provides a proper undoing of the intensity between lovers. In other words, this marriage that takes place often in the modern world where he's my best friend and she's my best friend and everything will be found in the other is actually like you're alluding to, I think, destructive. It, yeah. It, it, it's actually a single focus that lacks um, 
sort of um, um, it, it lacks a stability. Yeah. And the stability comes from the third piece or just like a, a stool that has a third leg. Yeah. You can't stand on two. And I, yeah. I, I find this again and again that the really healthy parents are the ones the kids seeing loving one another, not yeah. solely them. The parent focused right. on the kids singly, all yes. that energy like you talked about. That's right. It's almost like a laser beam on the kid to the point of destruction. Wow. No, I, I think that's incredible. Um, I remember somebody saying this to me years ago, and I don't know where it was, but it was that a similar observation about the children aspect of it, which is that the best thing uh, that parents can do for their children is to love each other. Right. Right. I, and and that's incredible. And it also reminds me of um, C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves, um, where he really goes into kind of the difference between eros, you know, erotic love and and uh, right. friendship love right. and all right. this kind of stuff. And he he talked about eros, you know, where the faces are turned towards each other, mm. and then friendship is when they're they're turned towards something common, common. Yes. something common. Yes. And and that reminded me of that. It's like so you have to have both uh, in a marriage. You have to have both, you know, but if you just have one or the other in a marriage, it's not, it's it not work. friendship and, is the um, outcome. Friendship is the outcome and love is the outcome of marriage. You don't have to have it going in. Of course, now I sound like some old fashioned crazy person, but <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, I didn't, you know, I think I had a lot of arrows, a lot of lust going in and 25 years later, it flowered like, like love and deep friendship. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. these are all blessings too, man. I didn't do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know I mean? yeah, yeah. But you know, it's funny because just that whole topic. Um, I've always struggled a bit with um, Romeo and Juliet, uh, Shakespeare's play, because um, oftentimes I feel like in our culture that that story is held up as the epitome of love. I know, and and, I, and, and I've never, for whatever reason, I, I just I've never been able to connect with it on that level completely because it it. But what you just said it articulates it a bit. It just for me that that story is, I mean, there's depths, there's paradoxes there. So I don't want to say it's only this, but there's an element of that, that facing each other to such an extent, you know, with, um, you know, and, and they did seek out the, the friar, they did get married. And so there's an element of that adding, you know, the, the triangle, but, but it was pretty weak, you know, it was, it was kind of, up being this sort of like self-destructive thing and um so you did so, have trouble with that even younger like you kind of recognized that wasn't your icon even or even oh young. yes i mean i went through some experiences uh of heartache and pain that really woke me up to that i remember very specifically when i was a teenager realizing that uh there was a book called the sacred romance that talked about um the the soul of you know the of the christian relating to god well i guess the story of the bible as a sacred romance right you know well for sure you know it's it's the it's the wedding feast it's the bridegroom and the church is the bride and all of these things and it go but it goes very deep and so i remember the moment where i i realized oh i didn't know that 
that that too belongs to to God. I know. I didn't know right? it either. Yeah, because I was already very like committed to my faith and focused and you know whatever. But I thought romance and love and all this kind of stuff was was kind of separate. It was its own. It was over there. I know. It was over it really there. Messed right? me up though. It messed me it messed up. me up too. And <laughs> it messed um, me up because yeah. I I could not help but go over there. I, I mean, yeah. it, it, it's not possible that mm-hmm. I wasn't going to go over there. Now, for me, it's possible. Yeah. Maybe you can monk up and 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 handle it through your twenties. But I I was going there. Yeah, I needed to know it properly. I needed to know it properly to prepare. And I I wasn't at least I need I wasn't taught it because it was just like you said it was a separate entity. And- yeah, and and it I don't think it is taught very often or very well. Um, you know, and even to this day when I have the the blessing of communicating with, you know, some of the fathers uh on the holy mountain or other monasteries and it it amazes me and inspires me how oftentimes they they will say um that if uh divine eros isn't present in one's relationship with god there's there's no way for it to to persevere um see it's 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 funny because externally it looks like it's all asceticism meaning like denial, but in reality it's actually that they're saying yes to something so much more um you know as saint paul says it's always yes you know in christ say it again say again forgive me where saint paul says you know it's 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 not yes and no but it's always yes in christ you know it's like um and that's an incredible thing for celibate ascetics to say no no the the real truth is it's divine eros and because they're not cutting out they're not cutting out the sensual now right they this is this is right this people don't realize it because first of all there aren't many ascetic traditions within western christianity so it's not like somebody's bad or good they just aren't aware that there's a whole conversation to be had about asceticism right it goes way beyond like oh he left so he doesn't get married or something you know yeah it's a deepness but sensual they're not chopping off one of their senses right they're actually enhancing it through the spiritual life think about that though that's wild in other words the thing i was always after and still very thankful for my central relationship that thing can actually be enhanced far beyond the thing that i it's it's short of what it can be whoa Mm. and i can get there by not doing it what that's crazy that's a paradox yeah it is a paradox and i also think that even taking that same principle and mystery you know uh that that the monastics live um uh and and relating that towards marriage in the world i i think there's a conversation there that needs to continue to happen because our culture is is uh very focused on you know it's almost like equating if i have if i have a desire that means it's good you know um and there's oh man here's another thing that just (laughs) this is a Light, maybe I don't know. I'll, well, you can help me connect this to what I'm saying, but I, 
I was reading Chesterton recently, I, I think his book Heretics, and um, he's just such a wonderful poet and writer. But one of the things he said in there, in essence, was it, it, nothing is actually romantic until it can't be undone, until it can't be revoked. Wow, wow. I don't know that. That's fascinating. Yeah. It's only romance when it can't be revoked. Think about like, think about Lord of the Rings. Think about all the great journey stories. It's one you, it's when you've given in and you've decided to take that step that all yeah. the romance begins. You're right. Yeah. You're right. Um, marriage is so, for sure, right? hundred percent. Oh, well, exactly. I mean, whether it's, it's marriage, uh, romance in the, in the, in the larger concept, whether it's one's, you know, dedication to Christ or to a, you know, a particular path that's, it's romantic when it, when it can no longer be revoked. Um, you know, and he would also say brilliant things like the most um, dangerous thing is orthodoxy, you know, mm. people think of tradition as the most safe thing. Well, no, it's really the, da- the most dangerous thing to remain faithful. Well, that's right. You know, it, orthodoxy. It's um, because it's the opposite of the lukewarm. Yeah. You yeah. spit the lukewarm out, but it something super hot and zealous that, that's, that's, yeah. that's animating you. Yeah, that's a difficult But I, I think where I was trying to maybe get with that was this sense of um, that myself included, our, our culture needs to be reminded and needs to magnify uh, what romance really is, what love really is, you know, to have a vision for it. Um, you know, and so with young people, you know, when they're looking at the the culture of, of uh, you know, just sleeping around multiple partners and all this stuff, and maybe someday I'll settle down and get married versus, you know, the more traditional uh, Christian perspective, which is to, uh, you know, save yourself uh, for your, your marriage and for your spouse. One version of that can be, you know, you, you have to just deny yourself, deny yourself, deny yourself. And it's this like, fear-based, fundamentalist kind of um, legalism of performance. But that's not the spirit of what's going on. The spirit of what's going on is the, the beauty and the romance within marriage is so beyond what we can comprehend that that's the goal. That's the reason, yeah. you know, why there's restraint that's the reason why there's a sense of patience or asceticism or whatever it's because of the beautiful it's because of something is more beautiful and more lovely um and that's i just don't think that that is um it it, it hit home very often unfortunately it's not but do it with theoria do it with theoria films do it because my wife and i always say because we're huge film buffs we like good movies yeah there has to be more jonathan there have to be there needs to be more good movies because um the story is fracturing and what i mean by that is the notion of a story of a narrative of a thread that runs through as a truth that runs through is it's not it's not present in a lot of these these films man. Oh, yeah. it's, it's not there it's like I'm going to tell you this because I want you to know that. What's well, how we started this whole podcast? Yeah, which is it's a polemic. 
And even when it's not a religious polemic, it's still a polemic. And I'm like, oh, nowadays, why, I feel why like are the, we doing the, this? The art, you know, art, loosely speaking of art. But I mean, just talk about TV shows or films. I mean, Oof. I just feel like it's become so polemical. What, you know, and look, uh, strictly from an artistic perspective, I don't want to watch a Christian polemical film or a political polemical film. I mean, I just I just don't want to watch anything like that. We regardless, last night. regardless of, 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 of what it's trying to say. Right. It's like, no, no. Like, oh, just please just just give us be vulnerable. Truth. Give us some honesty yes. and yes. truth. Yeah, man. But let's yeah. let's let's end this here. But just so you guys know, we'll probably just keep talking after I hit pause on this thing. I love this guy. Jonathan, thanks. It's it's really Thank good. You. It's always good. You'll come back and we'll we'll talk some more at some For point. Sure. Um I'll I'll include links to this beautiful okay. project down in Texas, the Aura Film. Um sure. maybe we we get together finally we we'll do a double day yeah I, I like that yeah let's make it happen yeah and um thank you man thank you I I'll appreciate just... it wow that was Jonathan Jackson actor American Orthodox convert heartfelt I, I think he's like a friend I don't think so I know so yet the screen remains between us and that's a conversation for all of us what does it mean to meet someone, have I, when I meet them through a screen? I don't know why I'm talking about that. It's not relevant. Consider going to our website right now and checking out all the other things we do, including KP Journeys. We take you overseas. We're going to Georgia in a month. Please join us. We have special dinners called the Super here at our KP restaurant in Greenville. Come on over. We're going to have a KP weekend where you come join us, support our work, and get to go to the restaurant and benefit and go and see our field workers in Appalachia. We're going to have a class this fall slash winter. If you're a donor, a monthly donor, you get to join. I don't know. There's a lot of cool stuff happening. I didn't even say them all, but I got to go because you've been listening for a long time. Much love to you from Wata.